Good morning, everybody. Oh, now, come on. Seriously. Thank you. I mean, this is the second service for crying out loud. You've had a little more coffee than the first service. By the way, I have to give a, uh, a shout-out to Mr. Preston Tiffany. Now, if you don't know who that is, he's our drummer. I'll Fly Away is an incredibly difficult song to play, believe it or not, on the drums, and he nailed it. So, good job, Preston. Thank you for serving us with your gifts. We're glad you're here. So, as Christianity continues to wane in the United States, not worldwide, but in the United States, what we're finding out is people don't replace Christianity with nothing. In other words, as those who uh, are, as the crowd who is identifying themselves as a nun, that is N-O-N-E, they do not subscribe to any particular faith or religion, as that crowd grows, they are not replacing that with nothing. Recently, there was an article that came out in the New York Times entitled The New Allure of Sacred Pilgrimages. And according to research, there is a noticeable decline in organized religion, but Religious pilgrimages are more popular than ever. And the first International Congress on Tourism and Pilgrimages in September, the UN released a study finding that of, three, of every three tourists worldwide, one is a pilgrim, a total of $330 million per year. The author went on to describe six pil pilgrimages people commonly take to discover what this phenomenon says about the future of faith. And what he discovered is that pilgrimage is not merely ancillary to the modern spiritual existence, what, however you might define that, people looking for spiritual truth. In an age of doubt and shifting beliefs, people are no longer willing to blindly accept the beliefs of their ancestors. They are insisting instead on choosing their own beliefs. A pilgrimage can be a central part of this effort. The rise of the idea of being on a quote-unquote spiritual journey is taking over the world. A pilgrimage reverses the commonly held belief that religion is passive. Rather, at its core, it's a gesture of action. In a world in which more and more things are artificial and short-lived. Hear that part very carefully. In a world in which more and more things are artificial and short-lived... A sacred journey gives the pilgrim the chance to experience something both physical and real. Again, people are not replacing Christianity with nothing because, frankly, every single one of us still needs answers. The fundamental questions of life are important to us. Why am I here? Why do I exist? What should I do with my life? And people want answers to these questions. They want to know. And here's the big question of the age. Who am I? What is my identity? Because the culture is more than willing to impose that upon them. And in my own journey of faith, I've been sharing this on uh, Thursday evenings. As I myself have questioned, back in my 20s in particular, whether or not this Christianity thing was real. Questioning, well, you know, did I just inherit this from my parents? I mean, it's awful coincidental that I just happened to be born into a family that has the right quote-unquote religious beliefs. As I've been trying to understand for myself, 
particularly when I was younger, what does it mean to be a Christian? It's led me to some hard questions. How do I know it's the only way? If God is good, why is there pain and suffering? How can I believe in someone that I can't even see? What I want to talk about this morning is why and how do I seek for more of Christ? Why and how do I seek for more of Christ? The text I want to look at comes from John chapter 6. I want to look at verses 25 through 34 of John chapter 6. And if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. By the way, it's worth me mentioning this time uh, from time to time. The reason we stand for the reading of God's Word is to show honor to the Word of God. In the same way, oftentimes at the beginning of a baseball game, people would stand for the national anthem. We stand for the Word of God to give honor to the Word of God. So starting at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. You may be seated. We're continuing on through the Gospel of John portraying Christ as a living hope that we need daily. And in the book of John, it states why it was written. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. In John chapter 6, Jesus is explaining to the people and to the crowds that this feast called Passover that you've participated in for the past 1,400 years, for 1,400 years since you were delivered out of Egypt from captivity, from bondage, that was all pointing ultimately to me. And I am the fulfillment of this Passover feast that you Jews have been celebrating for the past 1,400 years. And the crowd is seeking him. And as we understand this crowd, I believe we understand a whole lot more about ourselves on our own seeking after Christ. So I'd like to approach our subject this way this morning. Two questions and then a claim. Question one, why seek Christ? Then secondly, how to seek Christ? Finally, I'm going to make the claim that to seek more of Christ means finding more life. 
To see Christ is to find life. So let's start out with that first question. First of all, why seek Christ? And we see here that Jesus challenges the crowd's motives. After the miracle uh, on the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus walked across the water, he came to his disciples. We now pick back up with that crowd that he left on the other shore. They saw Jesus do a miraculous feeding. He fed 5,000 men, but in all in all, it was probably 15 to 20,000 people, and they want more. Noticing that Jesus was gone, but also noting that he never entered one of the boats with the other disciples, they pursued him across the Sea of Galilee. And then when they get to the other side and boats themselves, they question when he got there. Because, see, at this point, it hadn't even entered their minds that Jesus had just walked across the water. And they arrive, and they arrive with a question. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, Jesus, interestingly, is not one bit interested in this question. Now, why is that? Because he could have just said, well, just so you know, I decided to take the shortcut, didn't walk around. That was really the only other option. If there was no boat, they assumed, well, he must have walked around, but he's already here. He didn't share that with them. See, they had seen the sign that he was God through that miraculous feeding on the other side of the sea. They experienced him meeting their physical needs. They wanted more of that. Christ is after something different at this point. He's not interested in just meeting their physical needs. In other words, he's pointing out now you have a much deeper need that you are not even aware of. Your situation is much more perilous than you even realize. They were coming with hungry bellies, but they were completely ignorant of a deep hunger that they had in their souls. So they're in a desperate situation. Now, what's Christ going to do? He's going to give them an appetite for a different kind of bread. Look what he says in verse 27. He says, Do not work for the food that disappears, but for the food that endures to eternal life, the food which the Son of Man will give to you. For God the Father has put his seal of approval upon him. Now, this is a weird command. But remember what he said to the woman at the well. Remember, he came to her and said, look, what you need is not more water from this well. What you need is living water, and if you drink it, you won't get thirsty again. Now, he's saying that what I'm telling you is true because the seal of approval is upon me. Now, we don't think much in terms of seals of approval that you would get a scroll that had a wax stamp on it that was insurance that it was from who it says it was from. It kind of reminds me you remember in elementary school when the dental hygienist would come to your class and talk to you about the importance of brushing and flossing and also don't ever buy a tube of toothpaste unless it's got the ADA seal of approval on it. I, they did this in West Virginia. I don't know if they did it here or not. But don't ever buy toothpaste that's not been approved by the American Dental Association. That's what they kept preaching to us, meaning that it was Tested and approved. Jesus is saying, I've got the seal of approval. The Father himself has approved of me. He says, I can give you food that lasts forever. 
But the people had a responsibility if they were to get this food. Now, see, it calls into question, well, why do we seek Christ? What is the motivation to come after Christ? And we live this life oftentimes seeking out satisfaction, and, and we don't even really understand our needs. Every person in the world wants to know what will make him or her happy. We're desperately seeking for a person or a place or a career or a degree. Like those people on those pilgrimages, they're looking for something. They're looking desperately for something. They'll need our expectations, our needs and wants. What will truly satisfy the desires of our heart? Because the Bible is full of these glorious promises of satisfaction for discontented people. Look at what the Bible says, even on in John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In Psalm 107, 9, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Psalm twenty two twenty six. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And finally, Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I mean, these are big promises. There's a writer named Herman, Herman Bavink, and he said that God and God alone is man's highest good. God is the source and sustainer of all good. He and he alone as the writer notes, is the abundant fountain of all goods. Nothing in the universe is able to produce true goodness unless the good creator is its source. The truth puts all of life in perspective for mankind. To state it plainly, if goodness is what we desire, then we have to go to the source of goodness, who is God himself. That's why Jesus will, that's why only Jesus will ultimately satisfy us. But how do we get him? And then if we feel like we have him, well, how do we get more of him? In other words, well, then how do we seek Christ? How do we seek after Christ? Because the people have questions. Jesus has thrown some heavy truth on them. And they ask in verse uh, 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Well, now, wait a second. The people are still thinking on the physical level. Well, what labor do we have to perform? I mean, what laws do we have to keep? This is, this is hard to understand. And, but Jesus introduces something they didn't see coming. That the only quote-unquote work that God requires is faith in His Son. Now, thinking that believing uh, in Him is a choice that they need to make based on whether or not they have adequate evidence, they ask another question. They move on to verse 30. Well, what sign are you going to give us then so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? And the irony here is that Jesus had just given them a sign. I mean, they just saw this miraculous feeding. 20,000 of them fed from just a few 
fish and loaves. But these interrogators are remaining in disbelief. They thought that God's order is first you see it and then you believe, but the divine order is to believe and then to see. The people then make an appeal to what has happened in the past. They let Jesus know what their expectations are. Well, Jesus, if you want us to believe in you, here's, here's the deal. Verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. It's a quote from Psalm 78.4. Okay, so, so manna was the expectation, which was sort of like a bread. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, God would supply them with manna. It would rain down at night before the sun came up. They would deliver, they, they would go and they would gather it before it would melt in the heat of the day. Each day the people would gather only enough bread for that day, which meant they had to trust the Lord to bring the food each morning. Look at what it says in Exodus 16, 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, the, the Jewish rabbis had put a lot of thought into this verse. As a matter of fact, they would write commentaries, the, the rabbis on the entire Old Testament. These were called midrashes. And they'd come to a conclusion on um, Exodus 16.4, and they wrote this in one of their commentaries, as the first Redeemer caused manna to descend, so will the latter Redeemer cause manna to descend. So the Jewish understanding of the next Redeemer would be that He also would bring manna from heaven. So in Judaism, there was an understanding that way back in, in the time of Moses, that there were these big, like, storage bins full of manna in heaven. And what happened is they would go, God would go to the storehouse, he would get a shovel full of manna, and he would dump it down on the people. And he did that night after night, shoveling that manna out and raining it down on the people. So when the next Redeemer came, he would reopen those storehouses full of manna, and he would also let that rain down on the people. That was the expectation. So they thought Jesus' feeding was less significant because, see, originally that manna fed the nation of Israel for 40 years. So, you know, well, Jesus, what have you done for us lately? But they're missing something. Mainly that even in those 40 years of, of God himself feeding the people every day, still there were many Israelites that did not believe. Every day for 40 years, and still some continued in unbelief. The important thing is not the magnitude of the sign, but the understanding of its significance. Because the sign itself is meant to reveal the sign giver. Then look at Jesus' response in verses 32 and 33. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is saying, I'm the bread. He's going to be even more explicit about this in the verses uh, next week. So Jesus follows the same interpretation of the manna that the Jewish teachers did, that the source of manna was always God. It was never Moses, and Christ is the new bread. 
See, the crowd was demanding evidence. We need evidence. But what they needed was faith. Look at how they responded. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. But what this speaks to is just how essential faith is. If you want to understand how essential faith is, I like this. Uh, this was a story in the book called um, Things Unseen. Just imagine this, the author said in the book, that you sit down with your doctor and he just diagnosed you with a terminal illness. You sit down to comprehend this and you, you ask that doctor, well, is there no hope? And the doctor looks at you square in the face. As a matter of fact, even grabs you by the shoulders and says this, there is one thing. Without this one thing, it's over. But with this one thing, you will be completely healed. But let me be utterly clear. It's impossible for you to live without this one thing. Well, what would you say to that? Well, listen, Doc, you're boring me. My favorite show is coming on here in about five minutes, and uh, I really don't have time for these silly cat and mouse games. We'll see you later. Or... Well, that's interesting, but doctor, well, that's just your opinion. You're entitled to it, and I'm sure it makes you feel better having expressed it. But I resent your attempt to impose it upon me. I don't need this kind of psychological blackmail, medical fascism, goodbye and good riddance. Or what? What is it? Tell me now. I have to know. I want to see my kids grow up. I'm not leaving this office until you tell me exactly what this is. Because, of course, that's how you'd respond. That's the only sane response. If we're saved by faith, if we live by faith, and it's impossible to please God without faith, the only sane response is, well, what is it? What is this faith? You have to tell me. I have to know. I'm not leaving until I do. What is this faith? If we go back, actually I want to go back 500 years to the time of this Protestant Reformation, you had a group of men who, was, who were about to cry out something called sola fide, by faith alone. They were interested in reforming the Catholic Church. And one of the proclamations of the Reformation is, it is only by faith alone that you're saved. There were others. But they said, if we're going to make this proclamation, then we have to understand what faith is. And they came up with three essential ingredients to faith. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. First of all, knowledge, you have to have the content. This is the basis of our faith. It's not enough for somebody to just say, you know what? I've got faith. I just have faith. Well, that doesn't help. In the case of the Christian, we have faith in a person, Jesus Christ. He made the claims that he was God, that he was perfect, that he came to take away the sin of the world. The second person, the Trinity. That's the content, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And then the second is ascent. It's one thing to have the understanding of who Jesus is. It's something else to believe that that salvation is for you, that you are a sinner. 
It's when you think it's true, that you've studied it, you've thought about it. And then finally, this last stage of trust, that you can rest in it, that you can rest that it isn't going to be by working and working and working and trying to be good that you're going to be saved. That's not how it works. In the same way you sat down in that chair this morning without having examined it, you trusted it was going to hold you up. You can think about it in terms of a lifeboat. Let's say you're on a sinking ship and on either side of that sinking ship are rows of lifeboats. Well, one person may walk over and look at the lifeboat and Say, I know what that lifeboat is for. In case the, the, the ship sinks, I understand that the purpose of that lifeboat is for me to get in it. That's knowledge. But then there's an ascent that says, you know what? I believe it can save me. I believe that lifeboat, if I get in it, that it's going to save me from this sinking ship. Well, now you've got two things. You've got knowledge and ascent. But there's a third step. And that's actually getting into the lifeboat. And you get into the lifeboat, and you may be terrified because maybe the waves are kicking up. But as you continue in that lifeboat, you start to trust it more. You gain some confidence in its ability to save you, and you, you start to realize, wow, maybe I can even enjoy the seas now. And the longer you're in it, your fear and your anxiety begin to subside. They start to fade away, and you see that's how life was meant to be lived. You see, the truth is, when you seek more of Christ, you find more life. And we initially come to Christ with maybe just this tiny little bit of trust. I mean, just a meager amount. And that is okay. I mean, when Jesus was talking about faith, he said, if you could just have the faith of a mustard seed, this tiny little bit, there's a lot you can do. I mean, maybe you close your eyes and you jump into the lifeboat. That's okay. You don't have all the answers. You don't know how the lifeboat was constructed. That's okay. You don't have to understand all the ins and outs of Calvinism and Arminianism and systematic theology to become a Christian. Two facts, two parts of this seek more Christ and find more life. First of all, seek to please Christ alone. Not man. It means doing what Christ commanded. What did he command us to do? Well, he said to love the least of these, those who can never return our generosity. He said to, to gather together as God's people. He said to pray, to forgive, to please him. And our motives change along the way. See, even if we come with motives we don't completely understand at first, like this crowd, he teaches us. And we also seek to understand Christ more. Now, for the Christian, we start with faith, however small it may be. But we, we sang it this morning, as a matter of fact, that Christ is the perfecter of our faith. We don't come to Christ initially with perfect faith. Faith, though, precedes understanding. It's like when small children first trust their parents and believe what they state. And it's only later on when they grow up, they want to examine and understand the reality by themselves. This is like growing up in Christ. I like what Anselm of Canterbury said about this. And around the 10th or 11th um, centuries, he said, I do not seek to understand in order that I may believe, but I rather I believe in order that I may understand. 
You see, that's why we continue teaching the Bible and theology here at First Baptist Church. Because as your understanding of Christ grows, you find more life, more reassurance. And as we grow up in Christ, by His grace, fear will begin to fade some more. Anxiety will begin to fade some more. So that we can have a faith that can withstand whatever challenges come our way. So again, seek more Christ and find more life. I'm going to close with, this is an illustration of how the, the beauty and the majesty of God can cause our hearts to desire Him more than, we, than when we used to desire to sin. So that as we are more and more deeply introduced to the beauty and majesty of Christ, that our affections would be turned to Him more and more. And Pastor J.D. Greer says, think of our relationship with Christ like a balloon. He said there's two ways to keep a balloon afloat. So the only way, if you, fill, if you fill up a balloon with your breath, the only way to keep it up in the air is if you keep smacking it. You know, uh, at my birthday parties, we didn't get the helium-filled balloons. You had to keep smacking the balloon up in the air if you wanted to keep it up in the air. Smack, smack, smack. And that's how religion keeps you motivated. It repeatedly hits you. Stop doing this. Get busy with that. Uh, and, and this is my life as a pastor, you know. Um, people come on Sunday and I kind of smack them. This is what the Word of God said. Maybe that's why people don't like me more. <laughs> Be more generous. Go do missions. They sign up for a trip. And every week, smack back into spiritual orbit. And, and, but there's another way to keep a balloon afloat, and that is to fill it up with helium. And then it floats on its own. There's no smacking required. And as we continue down this path, as we continue towards maturity, I believe that it gets filled more and more with sort of this helium, that we seek to please God more and more out of love and not out of have-tos, because we understand more and more that He gave us commands because He loves us. And in following those commands, we get not just more of Christ, but we get more of life along with it. Please pray with me. Almighty God, we love you, but we don't do it perfectly. We believe in you, but we still don't believe perfectly. And Lord, we trust that you help us with our doubts as you bring us to full maturity in you. Lord Jesus, thank you for paying the price for our sins. Thank you for providing us with life abundant. I pray that we would seek you more, that we would seek to understand you more, that we would never become satisfied or lazy in our pursuit of you. That as we gather with your body, that we would trust you more and more each day. We thank you for everyone here this morning. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to remind you that just here in about oh, 20 minutes, we'll be proceeding with our um, annual business meeting. Uh, between now and then, if you're in need of prayer, feel free to join me at the front of the, the auditorium here. I'd love to pray with you. Otherwise, have a wonderful Sunday, and we'll see you soon.